Welcome to the podcast of New City Church. We hope this podcast inspires you on your journey of inward and outward transformation. Please join us on Sundays. You can find more information on our website, grownewcity.church. God bless you. So grateful for them. We, for those of you who are joining us for the first time or the first time in a long time, welcome. We are in a sermon series called Love Notes. This is a sermon series that is looking at all types of relationships, whether it's romantic relationships or non-romantic relationships, roommates, mentorships, and all that stuff. Today we are going to be talking about how to become a village for our children. Uh, But first, before that, I want to just name that the scripture reading that we just had, do any of you know the, um, the Jewish name? This is high-level trivia right here. Do any of you know the Jewish name for the, the reading that we just heard? Yeah, well, I gave you a book that said it. <laughs> oh, you knew it? Okay, yeah. Yeah, so the Shema, this, is, uh, this reading that we had today, uh, oops, uh, this reading that we had today is called the Shema. Shema is Hebrew for hear or listen. So when we, uh, in this scripture, when it says Israel, listen, It's saying, Israel, Shema, listen. And it's kind of like, not just about being able to hear the sound waves, but it's like, pay attention. And so this is, uh, this is the Bible saying like, hey, listen up. (laughs) Like, this is something important. Um, This is a really important message in in Deuteronomy, that the Lord our God is, is Lord and only the Lord. Or another translation says, the Lord is one. This is a really significant moment because um, in ancient Near Eastern context, a lot of folks um, believed in tribe-specific gods or place-specific gods. And this is a theological construction that's saying like, actually, we believe that the God of love is the God of everyone. And, and, and therefore, like, there is a path to peace because now it's not our God versus your God. We're trying to say like, there's one God of love. And that God is setting all of us free. That's kind of a, it's kind of a big deal in Deuteronomy. And, uh, and it's such a big deal that right here at the end, uh, in that bold, we see some instructions on how exactly we're supposed to go about this. Tie them on your hand as a sign. They should be on your forehead as a symbol. Write them on your house's door frames and on your city's gates. Now, this was such an important tradition, such an impactful scripture for the past millennia, like many thousands of years for countless numbers of people. This is so important that uh, in the Jewish tradition, they literally uh, have what's called tefillin, where they literally bind it to that scripture to their foreheads and to their hands so that they can pray because of how seriously they are taking this injunction to pray regularly. They also have something, if you've ever entered a Jewish household and notice um, on the door frame, there's like a little, uh, a little um, it's called a mezuzah nailed to it. It's like a little piece of scripture. That is because uh, this is one of four places that talks about putting scripture onto your door frame. This is how serious they're taking this. Like this is so, so significant because it's like by encountering God, it, it, uh, we are creating a pathway towards peace. And so that's, that's um, what they're really interested in. And Deuteronomy, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible or if you're new to Christianity, welcome. Deuteronomy is the fifth book in the Bible. Um, and it's right of, um, something really significant happened a couple books back 
that Deuteronomy is responding to. Something really significant that, um, I don't know if you ever heard of Moses <laughs> or that guy that doesn't ring a bell, no. Okay, so um, Moses was like, again, uh, with his people who were enslaved and then God set them free. There was that whole moment where the Red Sea was parted. Some of you might remember like the 19, uh, what was it, like 1970s, Ten Commandments. Yeah, okay, so Moses existed even before then, yep. And, uh, <laughs> and so Moses did all of this, set people free, in, uh, in the book of Exodus. And it was a really big deal. Like, imagine living in bondage and doing all of this work for this Pharaoh, and then one day, God opens up a, a sea, a giant body of water, so that you can walk right through to freedom. It was a really, really big deal because they discovered that God is a God that doesn't just talk about caring about people, but a God that actually cares about people. A God who doesn't just talk about people being free, but a God who actually frees people. They're like, wow, this is a really big deal. But uh, in the book of Deuteronomy, they're getting to a place where the people who experienced this were starting to get old and pass away. And so they were trying to figure out, how are we going to instill in the next generation the liberation that we experienced? How are we going to um, pass on our hard-earned wisdom to people who are younger than us? Because we encountered a God who was so strong that God set us free, God made a way where it seemed like there was no way at all what are we going to do for our children who haven't witnessed this, or our grandchildren who haven't witnessed this? How are we going to pass this on? And this, I want to, want to be clear, isn't just talking about how are we going to tell this to our children, like the biological child of parents. I don't know if you've ever, if any of you uh, grew up in like a collectivist culture, but certainly um, uh, the Old Testament was written in, a, in the context of a collectivist culture where like, it takes a whole village to raise a kid. It's not just like the biological parents, it's like the whole community is uh, raising a kid. Of course, like lineage matters, biological lineage matters if you're like deciding who's gonna be king or deciding like kind of those, those important things. So there's a lot of lineage in the Bible, but the expectation was that children would be raised by the whole tribe. And, um, and in fact, there are still many cultures all around the world who would think it very bizarre, the American tendency to believe that children only kind of belong to parents and that only parents are responsible for children. And so Deuteronomy was saying, how are we going to pass this on to our kids? Not just our like literal biological kids, but how are we going to be good um, have, have any of you ever had like aunties or uncles? Okay, so I remember going, I, um, my dad is from Hong Kong, that side of my family is Chinese, and I remember going to family meetings, and, uh, and they'd be like, Tyler, this is your auntie. And I'm like, oh, I don't remember seeing you in any of the family pictures. And dad being like, Tyler, it's your auntie. That doesn't mean it's your aunt, it means your auntie. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm like, okay, as a kid, I'm starting to realize that it takes more than just biological parents to raise a child. Uh, it takes a lot more, actually. And, and, um, and so here, just imagine in ancient Israel, there's like a lot of aunties and uncles who are like 
It matters to me what our children believe about God. It matters to me what our children experience as love from God. Because the love that delivered us into freedom is the same love that's around today. But it might not be as obvious. And so they were trying to, trying to make that uh, very apparent or very clear. And that is what Deuteronomy is all about. So the question that we have as Northeast is what has God shown us that is so significant that we want to make sure that our next generation knows about this? What has God shown to you? What hard spot has God delivered you from when you thought that there would be no way out and then God made a way out? When you thought that, you're, uh, that you hit the end of your rope or that you were hitting bottom and then life kept happening, when you thought that you were in a pit of hopelessness and despair, and yet something brought you through. What is it about that that we can share with the children of our community? And I want to be clear that um, in uh, uh, um, my own story, I learned about this through uh, conversations with several mentors. One of my mentors, um, one time I had some mentors uh, take me aside, and these were people who were um, activists in the 80s and 90s for HIV AIDS research. These were these mentors who were not related to me, who didn't know me before as a child, but just kind of met me as a seminarian and said, Tyler, we have an important story that happened that we have to pass on to you. Because I, uh, for those of you who haven't been here for a second, I identify as gay. So, uh, so I was talking to these other mentors who were gay. And the thing about being in the gay community is that um, we really have to practice telling stories to each other because it's not like entire families of gay people exist. You know, like, do you know what I mean? Like, it's like there's like a smattering of gays across many families. And so we kind of have to like tell stories to each other in order to keep our like heritage going. And something that they were really dead set on telling me about was how in the 80s and 90s, HIV AIDS was known as gay cancer and, uh, and queer people were dying without anyone knowing about it. There was a 0% survival rate to this mysterious disease that started popping up. But even though it was so deadly and even though it was so mysterious, no uh, politician would talk about it on a public stage it wouldn't be, uh, and no one who went on TV would publicly talk about it. And so we have this specter of death moving through the queer community, and no one in the public discourse was talking about it. And they said, Tyler, we need you to understand that, like, you didn't grow up in this time, but this is part of what it means to be part of the LGBTQ community, because, like, there were folks who were so, um, like, we were looking at a disease that had a 0% survival rate and we didn't know how it was transmitted. And we were still finding something, finding a way to fight for our lives. We're still finding a way to come together as community and say that we deserve to exist, we deserve to have dignity, and we deserve to be recognized on the public stage. And so, like, we need, uh, you know, this famous line, we need research not hysteria, was really relevant to my mentors as they're telling me about this, because my mentors um, were not only activists, but they were also researchers. So get this story. 
One of, my, uh, one of the people that I'm talking to, there's three folks who were in this group, is a researcher on like bloodborne pathogen. And so she, in the 80s and 90s, is, was one of the first researchers to dare to take on studying HIV AIDS. You could barely get any funding. She kind of had to do this as like a passion project. And so she's starting to do this research. And she um, uh, started taking blood samples from all across the US because it was like this national thing. But as she was taking those blood samples, the government uh, made a rule that you can no longer transport um, uh, blood that has HIV or AIDS in it across state lines because they were like, we don't know how this spreads, and so we're just going to make a rule that this is not going to, we're not going to allow this. Um, however, here she is uh, collecting these uh, samples, but her lab is in a different state. And so she is like, I have these samples and I have this lab. And I'm faced with a decision where I can obey a law and ensure the death of countless people, or I can break the law and ensure the life of countless people. And so she did what I hope any good Christian would do in that situation and broke the law for the sake of, of the life of countless people. And so you know what she did? Um, so she has all these uh, blood samples. She, so do you remember like in the 90s when you could just bring anything onto a plane? They were like, oh, you have like a sword and a switch knife and like a flare gun and just like anything. Do you remember back in those days? And so she just like got some ice packs, put the, uh, these blood samples into like a bag and then just carried a bag of blood onto this plane and put it in like her overhead compartment and then sat down and was just like, dear Jesus, please don't let that fall over in this plane today. And she made it to her lab and she contributed to research among thousands of scientists who were standing up to do this, research that would eventually save countless lives. Research that would eventually decrease the stigma of HIV AIDS and it changed the course of American history. Indeed, a lot of the organizing that happened during this era was the predecessor for a lot of the organizing that happened for same-sex marriage uh, in the 2000s. And so like, this is a really important moment when God showed up. And I, of course, you know, I, I grew up in the 90s, I'm gay, but like, I wasn't like, doing that uh, in the 90s, and so I didn't have any of these stories. And here were my mentors saying like, there is something about what happened that you need to know about. There is like a, a story that if it doesn't get passed on, then we are doomed to repeat history. And there's a story of resilience and liberation that you, Tyler, need to know you are capable of. Something that always keeps people down is when people don't realize how powerful they actually are. And so here were my mentors saying, you have no idea the influence that you can have when you organize with other people for the cause of love and liberation that God has set you up to organize for. You have no idea how the course of history can bend with just a couple of you and some friends uh, changing history. And so here were my mentors passing this down in kind of a way that I felt like was the tone of how I imagined Deuteronomy being written. Like, 
Hear, O Israel, there is a God who's saying, bring a bag full of samples to that lab because we are getting to a new world. We're building a new society. There's something for us to pass on. And we as a village have an opportunity to be part of children's lives. Um, now, I want to be really clear about something. Um, in the book of Deuteronomy, it's written word, and so it's easy to think that um, when we say teaching something to children, we mean like um, learning by rote. Do you all know what that means? That means learning by rote is like saying the same thing over and over again so that uh, you memorize it. Some of you may even remember like old school Latin classes uh, that just kind of like, uh, we just are gonna recite what is on the chalkboard and sit down and that is learning by rote. So much research has come out about how children learn and uh, a lot of research says that children learn very poorly by rote. Learning by rote is helpful if it's like short-term memory, like if you're cramming for a test, that actually does kind of help. Uh, or you should do more than just cram for a test, but sometimes cramming for a test also helps. And um, learning by rote is helpful if it's something that you have to do like every day. And so learning like the passcode to your garage is a good thing to learn by rote because it's reinforced daily. But more than anything, we, uh, the research shows that children learn less by rote and more by love. Children learn less by just like having to repeat memorized things and more by the affection and love and stability of adults around them in their lives. And so when I'm talking about us being a village for the children in our community, I'm not saying that all of us need to be like cornering children like, okay, tell us what Bible verse you memorized today. <laughs> like, we're not trying to do this like rote memorization thing. Tell me, tell me every part of the Apostles' Creed, go. Like, there, it's not about trying to download information into the children of our community. We're trying to create a community where children know that they are loved and that they are safe. Children know that they can come here and this is a spot where they can feel supported, energized, and celebrated for exactly who they are in whatever their journey, wherever their journey is taking them. We want to show children that they can explore questions and doubts and, and still come to church. Like these are, these are the kinds of things that like, I'm really passionate about. And of course, like, I'm someone, ironically, who, um, who doesn't have kids and who doesn't really ever intend on having kids. But I heard a calling from God that said, like, it's not that you're supposed to have kids, it's that you're supposed to be a, a gunkle, do y'all know, a gay uncle? Y'all know a gunkle? It's a huge, every child needs a gunkle in their lives. It's a human right. So, um, it's like, we, we just need like a bunch of aunties and uncles and uncles, if that's how you identify. And, uh, and we just need a bunch of people who are looking out for these kids. Like I remember having so many experiences and memories in church. And for those of you who grew up in church, maybe you can relate to this. Like there were some key folks who were core mentors in my life, some key Sunday school teachers, some key pastors who were like really important mentors. But more than that, there was the body of the church that showed me what it meant to be community together. There are people who I didn't even talk to as a kid that I learned 
from because I saw them coming to church every Sunday, and when I saw them, they always smiled and greeted me and maybe gave me like a cookie, which I never turned down. And like, it was, do you see what I'm saying? Like children learn by observing adults. And whether you have a kid or you don't have a kid, you have an opportunity to have a part in children's lives by showing up as your authentic self to this community. You have an opportunity to show love to kids by being a community that they are also a part of. And this isn't just learning by rote, this is about demonstrating love. The reason why I wanted to talk about this today of all days is one, because obviously uh, Jay is coming in, uh, getting ready to uh, do really well at um, children's ministry. But some of the things that Jay is talking about is like, he's like, you know, I would really love for children to not just be told to like sit down and be quiet for an hour in worship. Like he's like, what if kids had a role in worship? What if this was like a space where kids could feel engaged in worship? What if this was something that wasn't just like, mom, do I have to go to church? But it could actually be like, like a place where we, it's clear that we're building activities and environments for them. And, and having roles in, in worship or, or special toys or special activities or special um, things are all part of that. But something that I was talking to Jay about is like, you know, I have a feeling that we, um, the parents did a focus group over the summer. Um, and, and it was like, you know, I have a feeling that parents are going to be chill with a lot of, with any of the directions that we go. I like, it seems like there's a lot of alignment and values. Um, and I have a feeling that the kids are going to be uh, good with it. What I want to talk to are the adults who aren't currently parenting children. Because I just want to say up front that uh, our worship services might get a little bit noisier. I'm just going to say that up front. Like, there's just going to, yay! I'm just letting you know so you can do the spiritual preparation that you need. Because listen, if there's a kiddo who's a little squirmy, if there's a kiddo who's like, um, like uh, vocally reacting to some of the sermon, which by the way, any of you can uh, vocally react to, um, like, what we don't need is like the icy church look. <laughs> Like, we don't need, like, the death stare of, like, how dare you be a kid in this space? How dare you not be a fully grown adult when you're five years old? Like, there's just going to be a little bit more, like, like this <laughs> going on. And, and I just want all of us to be mentally prepared because it's not just about uh, kids being able to have a space that is especially built for kids because that's important. It's also part of our practice. I'm speaking on behalf of like folks who uh, are not going to be parenting kids. Like it is part of our spiritual discipline to create community where children feel supported and safe and flourishing. It's like all of that. And you know, that doesn't mean that I'm going to be parenting a child. Like uh, I talked to Jesus about that and it was like, no, probably not. But, uh, but it does mean that we can create an environment where kids are like celebrated and, and uh, delighted in and accepted for exactly who they are, even when there's kind of a squirmy day, or even if they come to church in their pajamas. Or, you know, like there's a way that we can be community together that will teach kids by love. That's the direction that, that Northeast is going to be going. 
an opportunity for us to like be a multi-generational community. Um, and of course, that doesn't mean that like the sermon is just going to become a, a storybook, unless that's something you want. Uh, talk to me after the sermon if we want that. This like we'll still have preaching that's relevant. I'm still going to be reacting to current events. If something messed up happens in the news on Thursday, you can bet that we're going to be talking about it here on Sunday. Because if faith can't matter to the news, then what is even the point of anything? So like you can bet that there's going to be deep. Uh, in-depth analysis of the Bible in a way that is set for um, adult uh, learning and adult comprehension. But we're also just trying to be a multi-generational community together. This is our chance to be a village. If you're into it, can you say amen? Amen. Amen.